Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. What is heaven? Throughout the Bible, we find different layers of meaning, including heaven as sky, heaven as God's throne, and heaven is God's realm or dimension. Although heaven is a reality, it is not where we go when we die. Rather, the Bible teaches that the dead are asleep until the resurrection when they inherit the earth, renewed and restored. In this episode, you'll learn about what the Bible really teaches about heaven, as well as what other cultures and religions teach about life after death. Here now is podcast episode 149, Heavens for the Birds. If I ask you the question, what's heaven? I think we might get a bunch of different answers. A while back, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald sang a song, Cheek to Cheek. And it starts out like this. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak, and I seem to find the happiness I seek when we're out together dancing, cheek to cheek. Some of you know that. I won't do my Louis Armstrong impression. It's terrible. That's the idea that heaven is just sort of a state of mind. But that's not really what we want to base our theology on, what songs Fred Astaire came up with and then other people covered later on. You know, the Bible is our source for truth, especially with respect to something like heaven, which the Bible talks about quite a lot. So, I want to start by uh, mentioning there was once a prince in Israel, just the best-looking guy, and it's, actually the Bible says from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head, there was no blemish at all. Do you know who I'm talking about? It wasn't David. No. I'll give you another hint. His hair was so long and bushy that he would cut it once a year. Does somebody get it? I'm going to keep going. He, he would cut it once a year, and it, and it would weigh 200 shekels, which reportedly is three pounds. Now, assuming there's some serious product in there. I mean, but still, three pounds of hair at the end of the year. Well, anyhow, his name was Absalom. And in 2 Samuel 18, verse 9, we read, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak you know we're in trouble already, right? And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Pretty funny scene, huh? He's in battle, and he's, he's riding along, and he's got this big bushy hairdo, and it gets stuck up in the branches, and he's hanging there, and then the animal keeps going, so eventually... Those of you who know the story, the other, the other guys find him and they kill him and it's the end of the whole battle because they got the commander. But what I want to draw your attention to here is how the Bible talks about it. It says he was between heaven and earth. It's interesting, isn't it? And so here we see heaven is just a reference to the sky. He's, he's, he's hanging there. He's suspended. So he's between the sky and the land. Uh, the ancients didn't think of earth. Like if I say to you, picture earth right now. We probably all have the same image in our head. It's, it's this classic NASA picture taken. Uh, it's called the blue marble. 
And when uh, people in our century picture earth, that's what we think. If you ask an ancient Israelite to picture earth, they probably would picture a farm, just a big tract of land growing some sort of produce, because that's earth to them. They don't have the, the, our cosmology, our perspective. They, they have a very different point of view on things. They're, we tend to think of things from this like outside point of view, and they think of it more from an inside point of view. But uh, So, yeah, Absalom was hanging there between heaven and earth. And then we look in Genesis, look at verse 14 there. This is where I get this idea with the birds. Genesis 1.14 says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Now, you and I know that the, the lights here, we're talking about the sun and the moon. Those are the lights, just to be clear. We know that the sun is far away, millions of miles away. I mean, traveling at the speed of light, it would still take you eight minutes to get there. I mean, it's just millions of miles away, the sun, right? We all agree on that? I think we all agree on that. It's not controversial. Uh, and then the moon, the moon's far away too, right? The moon's not actually in the sky, is it? Right, I mean, the, the, you have the sky, and then you have outer space, right? And then you have the moon, and then the, the sun's like way out there. But from the perspective of someone on Earth, Looking up, the sun is in the sky, and so is the moon. And so they're in, they're in the sky. That's what it's saying here. It's just as simple as that. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Verse 14, let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And he made the greater and the lesser, the, the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. Look at verse 20. And God said... Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. There's no distinguishing between the, the sun and the moon and the, and the birds. You know, they're all, in, they're all in the sky. And it's just simply because you're looking at it from the perspective of someone on earth. You're not thinking of it in a solar system point of view. You're looking at it from a terrestrial point of view. Look at verse 28. God said, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. This is God's commandment to the first people. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is where my title comes from, Heavens for the Birds. The water, it says the fish of the sea, and it says the, the birds of the heavens, and then you have these other living things that are moving on the ground, right? So... It's just as simple as that. Jesus said something like this too. I have that up on the slide here. Matthew 6, 26. He says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And the Greek word here, uranos, is the word for heaven. It's, it's, they translate it as air because that's what he's that's what he's talking about, but it's the same word that will be translated heaven other places in the Bible. And it's where we get our uh, planet name from, Uranos. Does it sound like a planet to you? Uh, anyhow, look at Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. All right, but that's not really what you want to know, right? You don't really want to know about the sky. You don't want to know about the birds. I mean, yeah, birds are nice. They fly in the air. We all know that. But that's not the only definition in the Bible for heaven. Okay, heaven is also the area where God 
dwells, where God rules, right? So the most basic definition in the Bible, what I'm saying to you, is that heaven's for the birds, right? It's just it's the sky, it's where the birds fly, it's where we see the sun, it's where we see the moon, it's where we see the stars, it's where we see the clouds. But Isaiah 66, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Think of that image for a moment. Earth is like a footstool for God. That's pretty awesome. He's just relaxed. He's got his feet up on the earth. <laughs> I love that. Let's read that again. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is this house? What is the house that you would build for me? God's like, you're going to build me a house? That's cute. You know, like your whole earth is an ottoman. You know, I just like kick my feet up on it. It's like a bench. You're going to build me a house. That you would build. What is the place of my rest? Verse 2, all these things my hand has made. That's interesting. So heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. All these things my hand has made. God made the heavens. He made the earth. He made it all. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So this is where I get the idea that heaven is the control room. We relate to that a little better than throne. Throne is a, a more of an ancient way of, of looking at it, but on a throne you have a monarch who's going to make decisions and plan the future and then issue commands and then other people are going to do what the king or the queen wants, right? Our... our world today is more like a control room. Like you're in a control room and you're, and you're sending out commands to different people and they have to do it. But that's, that's a, a way of looking at heaven that it's like the, the area where God is deciding and planning and as a result of that, it's his throne. Uh, it also says in the Bible that it's where, it, Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. He says, you know, if you, you want to lay up treasures on earth, people can break in and steal it. But if you lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, that's what Jesus is saying we should do. What does he mean when he says lay up treasures in heaven? Does Jesus mean you should build a mighty slingshot and take all of your money and shoot it into the sky as high as you can? I mean, they had no concept of a spaceship. But, I mean, even if they did, do you think Jesus is saying launch your your treasures in a spaceship? It's not what he's saying at all. What Jesus is saying is live for God and that's going to store up with God rewards that you will get later on. That's what he's saying there. He's not talking about physical treasures at all. Or Peter says that we have an inheritance imperishable kept in heaven. Or Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. It's just the idea that things are stored up with God, not physically, not literally, but in the sense that God sees them. God is going to reward us in the future. And so I have this quote from N.T. Wright that I thought was really helpful on this. He says, uh, What then do the New Testament writers mean when they speak of an inheritance waiting for us in heaven? This has been much misunderstood. The point of such passages as in 1 Peter 1.4, 2 Corinthians 5.1, Philippians 3.20, and so forth, is not that one must go to heaven, as in much popular imagination, in order to enjoy the inheritance there. So just because your inheritance is stored up in heaven doesn't mean you have to go to heaven to get it. Um, it is rather that heaven is the place where God stores up his plans and purposes for the future. If I tell a friend 
that there is beer in the fridge. That doesn't mean he has to get into the fridge in order to enjoy the beer. Great analogy. Right? Just because something is stored somewhere doesn't mean you have to go into that place to have it. Think about your own life. You have a bank account. You have money. You have a retirement. Whatever you have. When you come to the age where you retire, do you move into the bank? That would be really cramped, right? No, you don't. You, you, it's, storing, it's storing your inheritance, and then you take it out, and then you go move to Florida. I mean, isn't that what everyone in New York does? <laughs> so when the early Christians speak of a, a new body in heaven or an inheritance in heaven, they mean the new identity which at present is kept safe in heaven and will be brought from heaven to earth at the great moment of renewal. So this this idea of store, heaven as the storehouse. Heaven as this area where God is in control and God is issuing commands. Um, we'll, we'll look at this verse later, but in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So God's will is being done in heaven, and it's from there that he sits on his throne. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now, the Bible does not have a collection of precise words to distinguish between the sky, air, outer space, and the region where God dwells. There's no different words for all of that. We're going to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Um, and that's because the ancients did not have our cosmology. They saw the sun go through the sky. They saw the moon go through the sky at night. And, and that was it. It wasn't, it wasn't all complicated like it is, you know, over the course of human history until Copernicus and Galileo and so on. Uh, but, you know, even if I ask you the question, because we, we do think we're so sophisticated, don't we? If I ask you the question, what holds the moon in its orbit? What would you say? Gravity. But, uh, and, and so we, we, we're really smug about that. We're really satisfied. We're like, well, <laughs> gravity. See, we have a word for it. Because we have a word for it, we're like, oh, they were so primitive, right? But how does gravity work? I mean, we know that things that have mass have gravity. And the heavier something is, proportionally, the more gravity, more of a gravitational field it has. But why? Why does stuff have gravity? Do you know? I don't know. So, I mean, I'm not like, <laughs> I'm not trying to trick you here. <laughs> uh, this is what Einstein proposed in the early 20th century. He said that all of space time was like fabric. And so, this is a big rubber sheet with a bowling ball in the middle. And uh, he proposed that objects that have mass deform space time fabric so that anything passing by is going to be naturally drawn to it. And if it's moving fast enough, it will orbit. If it's moving too slow, it'll crash into it. If it's moving too fast, it'll just slingshot away from it. And so that was, that was his idea. But here's the problem with Einstein's idea. Uh, space is not rubber. Space is not a fabric. We can say the fabric of space. But if you ever go to space, what is it really? is nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, e even post-Einstein, most of us really don't even understand the most basic facts of gravity, I mean, if we're really honest about it. We just have a word for it, and, and for that reason, we think, well, we understand it. And that, and that brings me to, the, to my point of chronological snobbery. 
And that is the idea that you think you're better because you're born later. And, you know, it's just in the air, we pick it up. But that's not really true because just because you know something doesn't mean you're smarter than someone that didn't know that thing. It just means that you have the benefit of living in a time when that thing is commonly known. Think about this, your great-grandchildren, 100 years from now, they look back on you and they're like, oh, great-grandpa was hopelessly primitive. Great-grandma, oh, I mean, they still used liquid gasoline to power their vehicles. Oh, how primitive. They still, they, they put all their garbage, they dug a hole and put all their garbage in it and they called it a landfill. Who knows what they'll think about us, right? Or maybe they'll say they used paper. <laughs> Toilet paper. I mean, can you imagine? They will look back on us and they will think we are ho just like the way you think about your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents or somebody from the 1500s. You'd be like, they didn't even have electricity, much less social media. How did they live, right? So uh, we, we have to be careful not to be too smug and, and look at, okay, so the Bible doesn't have a thousand words to differentiate between different realms of heaven, right? It just has, it just uses the word heaven all over the place. Uh, so here's, here's uh, another way to say it. My 10-year-old is not smarter than Galileo because he knows there's a planet called Neptune. <laughs> Galileo did not know there was a planet called Neptune. He invented a telescope. He calculated all these equations. But my 10-year-old knows more about the planets than Galileo did. But that doesn't make Danny Boy smarter than Galileo, does it? It just, it just means that he lived later and other people discovered it. We do get some hints about God's heaven in Deuteronomy 10. Look at verse 14 there. It says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and with all that is in it. Uh, so that's Deuteronomy 10, 14. Notice that phrase there. It says, heaven and the heaven of heavens. They don't, might not have our vocabulary for outer space, which is not all that scientific of a word if you think about it. But they did sort of recognize that God was beyond just like the sky, okay? Uh, and so in uh, 1961, when Yuri Gagarin punctured the heavens, that was 57 years ago last Thursday, he didn't see God there. But I think if you're really reading the Bible, you wouldn't expect to see God there anyhow because this heaven of the heavens thing in Deuteronomy 10. Or look at this verse in 1 Kings 8:27. When Solomon built the temple, he said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. It's not like you just go far enough and then you find God. It's, it's not quite that simple. Um, and the ancients didn't have this idea, but we do. And it's the idea of dimension. Dimension. So there was this famous book that came out in 1884 by Edwin Abbott called Flatland, which uh, I read in preparation for this. It was from a time when people wrote English. I mean, I, it's just amazing all the words they use in the 1800s. I don't think we're smarter than them. Anyhow, this book proposes an a entire world that is flat, two-dimensional. Okay, so imagine the stage is flat land for a second. Okay, and so if you have an object on the stage, you know, like this, I have a glass here, it's a cylinder, but in flat land, it would appear as a circle because only the part of it that's touching the stage is visible, because there's no up, there's no down. It's a flat land. 
and that's the entire universe. And so then you'd have, you'd have squares, you'd have lines, you could have different shapes, but nothing that could be three-dimensional because that wouldn't be flat anymore. So he had this thought experiment that imagine there is this universe. The whole universe was like this. This is, where, this is the way you're born, you grew up, you're a square, you're a triangle, or whatever, and um, <clears throat> you know, there's this whole social hierarchy. The number of angles you have is, uh, determines how well you're doing in life. So at the very pinnacle of flatland is the circle because it has like infinite angles, right? And then at the very bottom, you have the isosceles triangle. Very primitive, but uh, they're the warriors because they have very sharp angles. Um, it's just a fun little book. But anyhow, the, the reason why I bring it up is because in this book, at one point, a square, who's the hero of the story, encounters a sphere from Spaceland. And when that sphere comes into his world, it appears as a circle, but it's like always changing how wide it is because it's going in and out of the plane that he sees. And that sphere brings him out of Flatland so that he can see the true world that he lives in. And so suddenly his house, he can see into other rooms of his house where there had been walls before when he was living in that two-dimensional world. And uh, so... Take it for what it's worth, it could be that there are more than three dimensions. And if there are, then God could be right here, and you still wouldn't see him. You know what I mean? So it might not be necessarily you have to get in a spaceship and all the rest. It could be that God's highest heaven or heaven of the heavens is just another dimension that we don't have access to because we're limited. That's not in the Bible. That's just, that's just an idea that this guy had. So what is in the Bible, though, is very clear which is that God's plan for his people is not to take us into other dimensions or into outer space, but to give us the earth as our inheritance. Uh, So let's go over to Matthew chapter 5. I want to look at a few verses in the Gospel of Matthew about this, because when it comes to heaven, I feel like a lot of what we do is speculate, like I just did. And, you know, that's fun, that's interesting. But it's, it's not going to be an anchor for your soul in times of difficulty. And that's what the hope is supposed to be, according to Hebrews. It's supposed to be an anchor for our souls. And when you have an anchor in a, in a, in a ship, uh, whether it's a great ship or a small ship, the ship still moves, but not that far. And so, and so that's the function of the hope in our own lives as Christians, is that if we have a clear view of what God plans for our future, then even in the hardest times, we're not going to shipwreck, even though we're, we're going to struggle in those times. So let's get a clear view of that. And that's this idea that earth is our future reward. And we see that in Matthew 5, 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. Jesus wasn't being original here. Jesus wasn't like, I've got a whole new doctrine for everyone. And, he, and he's like, you're going to inherit the earth. And everyone gasped, and they're like, oh, I thought it was heaven. No, everyone was totally fine during this point in the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. They were just like, yeah, okay. And he just went on right to the next thing. Because this is actually from Psalm 37. We're not going to go there right now, but Psalm 37 over and over says, don't worry about the wicked and how it seems like they're doing well in life. They're going to be cut off. But the righteous, are, they're going to inherit the land. The humble are going to inherit the earth. 
And so Jesus is just quoting that. I mean, like, people knew that already, even though us today, we get confused on this. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. This is the probably most famous prayer on our planet, I would think. It says, Matthew 6, 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is this idea of the kingdom. And Jesus is praying for God's kingdom to come. So from Jesus' point of view, the kingdom can either be past, present, or future. Right? And those are all the options. Uh, so if he's praying your kingdom come, he's saying it's not, it's not here. He would say, thank you for your kingdom if it was already here. But if he's saying your kingdom come, it's future. And he defines the kingdom coming as when God's will, look at verse 10 again, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when God's kingdom comes, his will will be done on earth. God's will is already done in his control room. On his throne, God is king, his will is done. In our world, is God's will always done? Well, unless you want to accuse God of being evil, I don't think you can say that his will is always being done here. Now, sometimes his will is done, especially in his people, and as, as those submit to his will and then carry out his mission in the world, his will is being done on the earth. But it's, it's also, there's also a lot of people that are just not interested in doing God's will at all. So this kingdom time is when God's will is done on earth as it's already being done in heaven. And then we look at chapter 19. This is the, my third one I want to look at with you in the Gospel of Matthew. There's a bunch in here. I just want to look at these three to show this to you. So the first was, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. The second is that when that happens, God's will is done on earth. And now this is the third one here. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This phrase here in verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the NASB, it says regeneration. Right? Okay. Uh, it says regeneration there, and it's, it's uh, this idea of creation again. It's like again creation, regeneration. So it's not just, it's not just that like when this time begins, our world is the same, and it's just like continually still wearing down, right? That's not, that's not the picture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is on earth, when God's will is done, and it's a time of regeneration. Regeneration is, is the idea of healing, right? Think of like a battery that's drained down and it needs to be recharged. You, you're like regenerating the battery. Uh, so it is with our world. God is going to regenerate our world. That's pretty cool. So our world is kind of like sapping energy and, and sort of running down, but like he's going to heal it. And so some of the problems with our world, right? What, what are some of the problems with our I'm not talking about the human issues, but just like the physical world, hurricanes, you know, extreme cold, extreme hot deserts are growing in our, in our world. Like the Sahara Desert is getting bigger and bigger. So um, these are the kinds of things that he's going to fix in that age to come. And what uh, verse 28, it says, 
in the regeneration or in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus is going to sit on a throne. That's the Son of Man, Jesus. If Jesus is on a throne on earth, that's going to fix our political problems. And not just in one country. I mean, it's going to fix the world's political problems because there have been political problems since the beginning. And once in a while, you get a period of peace and prosperity. But overall, if you study world history, it's, it's basically been a mess. And so when Jesus comes, he will establish his throne. And he's, and he's saying to his immediate 12 disciples here, he's like, and I'm going to give you guys thrones. Um, and then he says to the rest of us, verse 29 at the very end, that whatever you suffer, you'll be repaid, plus you'll get eternal life. How would you like eternal life? <laughs> How would you like to not die again? <laughs> Wait, we haven't died the first time. How would you like to be in a situation where you never die? That would be eternal life, right? That's pretty awesome. Let's go over to uh, Genesis chapter 3. So what I've established for you is that heaven refers to the sky. It refers to God's realm. And neither of those really relate to your destiny. Your destiny, according to Jesus, is to inherit the earth when God's will is done and the world is renewed and healed. That's your destiny. However, in between the time when that occurs and when you, whenever it is you happen to die, there's this intermediate state. Okay? And uh, so that's what I want to look at right now, the intermediate state between when somebody dies and when Jesus comes back to establish the kingdom. In Genesis 3.19, it says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Genesis 3.19. This is God's curse on Adam, and by extension all humanity. We all have this problem. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not that cheeriest little section, is it? But it expresses an important truth, which is that we are dust, and to dust we will return. I mean, we're not, the plan is not to like store us in some other compartment in the universe until the last day. It's, it's, to, it's to put us into the ground, and there's a poetry there, because originally God made the first people out of the ground, right? And so then they returned back to it. Here's three other verses that relate to this intermediate state. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol is just a Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. It's the grave, sometimes translated as the pit. It's just like where dead people are. But regardless of what Sheol means, it's clear here that there's not much going on there. Right? There's no work, there's no thought, there's no knowledge, there's no wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So therefore, work hard today. <laughs> it's a great working proverb, isn't it? Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Psalm 146.3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Isn't that something? When somebody dies, their breath departs, and they return, not to heaven, but to the earth. They return to the earth. And whatever they were planning on doing or thinking about doing, it's gone that day. But there's good news. 
<laughs> thankfully. There's good news. John 5, 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So where, where are the dead? They're in the tombs. They're not floating on a cloud. I know like cartoons, they're always like smoking cigars and stroking harps or something. I don't know where that came from. But um, according to Jesus, the dead are in the tombs. And when Jesus comes back, the exciting thing is they will hear his voice. Because if, if, you're, if you're in this state up here, right, in the Sheol or in the tomb, whatever you want to call it, there's no work, there's no thought, there's no knowledge, there's no wisdom. Presumably there's no hearing, right? Dead people are not hearing or, or they're not doing anything. They're just unconscious. They're out of it. So, um, but when Jesus comes back, it says that the dead will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So what Jesus teaches us here is that the time when he returns kicks off the resurrection. And that's when the dead come back to life, especially those who have died in Christ. So where, where are the dead? Well, they're in the tombs. I think you already knew that. They're in the tombs, they're in the ground, they're wherever they, wherever they are. But that's not the end. That's the good news of what the gospel tells us is that um, there is resurrection to look forward to. So you know that old epitaph, R.I.P., what that stands for, right? Right, that's all I'm trying to say. Rest in peace. And then when Jesus comes back, get up with a shout. Get up with a shout. Now, there was this uh, belief, this was, this was clear in the time of Jesus. This was non-controversial. Uh, but about 100 years after Christ, maybe a little less, there was a group of pseudo-Christians called the Gnostics that came along, and they said that when you die, your soul leaves your body immediately. And uh, so I have this, this quote for you in your, in your program notes, but I have it up here as well from Justin Martyr. Justin wrote about 160 A.D., somewhere about there, around there, 150, 160, 165. And so Justin says this. He, he's a Christian who's battling with these Gnostics, and he's talking to a Jew, so it's a really interesting book. <laughs> But, uh, for I choose to follow not men or men's doctrines, he says, but God and the doctrines by him. For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, who say there's no resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken up to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. It's a very bold statement by an early Christian thinker and writer. Now, of course, over time, Christianity changed and developed, but we're not the kind of Christians that want to go with the change and the development, are we? We're the kind of Christians that want to go with Jesus. We want to go with the apostles. We want to go with what the Bible teaches, even if later on traditions creeped in that changed what people believe. We want to get back to the original scriptures. So I want to agree with Justin Martyr here uh, that the resurrection is the real solution to the problem of death, not this whole business of, of going to heaven. As I was researching the subject of heaven and the afterlife, uh, the other, I just watched Thor the other day. Anybody watch the new Thor, Ragnarok? I, I thought Pat was raising her hand, but she wasn't. She was just scratching her nose. <laughs> Terry watched it. All right, so whatever. I mean, that's the Norse mythology, but um, there are a bunch of different views of the afterlife. So the Egyptians... They have some weird beliefs. They said, uh, at death, the soul goes to the kingdom of the dead where it must recite the secret formulae from the book of the dead. Okay. 
Uh, judgment involves the demon Amit devouring an unworthy soul, whereas the good lived on in the fields of Yalu and accompanied the sun on its daily ride. Only those who could secure embalming and a sarcophagus had a way into the afterlife. So if you didn't have enough money for the mummification process and to buy yourself a sweet sarcophagus, no afterlife for you. What about the Greeks, the Greek afterlife? Um, on death, Hermes takes the dead soul to the shores of the river Styx in the realm of the god Hades. Charon, the ferryman, brings the deceased across the river. Based on how someone lived, he or she would go to Elysium, which there was a movie about that, uh, Paradise for the Good and the Heroic, or Asphodel Fields, uh, if they did as much bad as good, or the Punishing Fields, if you were mediocre bad, and Tartarus, if you were really bad. Um, and that's where there's lava and, or the rack. That sounds painful. So the Greeks, very similar to the Egyptians, if you think about it, you have this immediate escape from the body and then a judgment. Same thing with the Greeks. Uh, then you have the Norse. This is back to Thor. The soul stays in the body until released through decay or cremation. It goes to one of four places. So you have Valhalla, where warriors who die in battle join Odin and Asgard. Folkvanger, a great meadow where Freya reigns, whoever that is. Hell, with one L, a place where those who are neither good nor bad go to reunite with loved ones. Or Nifhel, punishment for those who break oaths or commit wickedness. So with this one, a dead person, you know, the, the soul is like hanging out for a little bit. Uh, so if you, if you burn your dead, the soul gets out right away. Otherwise, it has to wait till like the body breaks down. But then it goes to one of these four places. Then you have the Zoroastrians who believe that matter is itself evil. So they think that there's this evil god who enters the body and contaminates it when somebody dies. But then an immaterial spirit escapes to remain in the vicinity for three days and three nights, suffering anxiety from recent separation. Then you have these angels and Mithra, it's pretty similar. All right, then you have the Buddhists. Buddhists are different, so let's take a look. At death, the person reincarnates based on the qualities of that one's actions, karma, to higher or lower forms of life. For Buddhists, the soul is not eternal, and believing so is a prime consequence of ignorance. When one succeeds in eliminating desire, delusion, and ignorance, he or she can, es she can escape the cycle and cease existence. So the ultimate goal in Buddhism is to cease existence. That does not personally appeal to me. I don't know that... It's what you're looking forward to. But, uh, so they have reincarnation for a while and then eventually ceasing existence, whereas the Hindus, they have reincarnation basically forever unless you can get out of that into um, nirvana, which is a perpetual disembodied bliss. <sighs> All right, almost done. Then you have the Taoists. Goal for the Taoists is to achieve immortality through breathing techniques, meditation, sexual practices, physical exercises, purified metals ingestion, like eating gold, and moral living with the goal of eliminating impurities and demons from their bodies to increase their soul's energy. Okay, so that, that's not all the views out there, but it's a good working collection, right? What do these all have in common? They all locate the arena of redemption off-planet. They're, they're all saying... This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's what they're all saying. They're all saying that when I die, I go somewhere else. 
And yet, what does Jesus say? He says the meek will inherit the earth. The radical teaching of the Bible over against the, the, the lie of the serpent in the garden, who says you shall not surely die, and you, you live on some other place. Against all of that and all these other isms and, and religions, the radical view of Scripture is that God is powerful enough and smart enough and patient enough to be able to fix this place back to its original beauty and paradise. And that when he does that, we can enjoy the kingdom of God on earth. So everything we've been talking about here has been focusing on what happens to the, the, those who are God's people. Uh, but what about the wicked? What about the sinful? What about those who live in rebellion to God? We'll talk about that next week. And uh, we'll look at, uh, what's our title for that? What the hell? Okay, so <laughs> our little heaven and hell series here. Let's pray to close out here. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your scriptures about what you plan to do with our world, that you are a God who is committed to your creation, not to scrap it and throw it away, but to renew it, regenerate it, to heal it, and to make it a place where your people can live in harmony with each other and with you. We so pray that you would help us to let this, let this hope sink into our souls. That we recognize that it's not just something in the Bible, but it's something that you have planned for each of us individually. That we are destined for this place because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your love. We thank you for that this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks for tuning in. Just to let you know, I do have a couple of other similar episodes along the same lines that you might want to check out if you're interested in this subject, including podcast 110, Heaven is Not My Home, one of the most downloaded episodes of all time on Restitutio. Take a look at that, Heaven is Not My Home. You can get that in your podcast feed or at restitutio.org and then just search for Heaven. Also, I've got links to other podcast info on conditional immortality, that's the intermediate state, as well as Podcast 10, a debate about hell. Is hell forever with Chris Date and Phil Fernandez? An excellent debate between annihilationism and eternal conscious torment. Speaking of which, stay with us for next week because John Courtright is going to share on hell and what the Bible teaches about that subject. So that'll be great. Also, I just wanted to read out two quick comments from Interview 33, Can You Lose Your Salvation, with Dan Gallagher. One person named Greg writes, Wow, a gift is a gift. He paid the price once. That simple. Christ did it. We go to the throne of grace, not works or judgment. I pray that you do not burden yourself down to think whether you're good or faithful enough for the kingdom. You are once you confess Jesus as Lord and believe God raised him from the dead. You are now a partaker with incorruptible seed. Jesus also took part of the same. He calls us brothers. We have the dad. See you in the kingdom. To this post, which I'm guessing means that you can't lose your salvation, Dan Gallagher himself replied, Greg, does the gift negate your free will choice to turn from God and reject him at a later point? Every point you raised in your comment was thoroughly examined in our paper and shown to be fallacious. I would highly recommend that you reread the section in 1 Peter 1.23 that you referred to when you mentioned incorruptible seed. 
it is clear in the context that the word is the uncorruptible seed, which is what we have been born again by or through, not the new birth. And while we may disagree that a person can accept or reject a gift of salvation after they have received it, I am sure we agree that a person must remain faithful, allegiant, to the king. Stay allegiant, and I have no doubt I will see you in the kingdom. Well, this all turns on the question of whether or not salvation can be forfeited after it has been granted. And if you're interested in that subject, as well as what Gallagher has to say on it, check out interview 33. And whichever side you're on, if you want to add your voice to the mix, why not stop by restitudio.org and find interview 33 and drop a comment there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.